Good morning, Colossians. Colossians, we're on Colossians. And that's an interesting letter. And it comes on the heels in the Bible of not only Philippians, not only Ephesians, but also Romans, Corinthians and Galatians. Not to mention Acts and the Gospels. And I think it might be easy to dismiss Colossians as, you know, one of the, not even late, late, but later, less famous letters more of the same, but if we understand the context within which it's written, there's something really special within these four chapters. Again, writing from prison, Paul is trying to clear up some misunderstandings. Uh, In the town of Colossa, we see the blending of various different beliefs, and because the Greco-Roman world, much like our own, was such a melting pot of religious and uh, philosophical ideas, the Christian church had come under a bit of confusion about what is actually Christian, and what may have infiltrated from the pagan world. And much like our own culture, we have many different ideas and beliefs and mixes of beliefs, and that as a church, we have got to stay firmly rooted in biblical teaching and understanding and seeking out Christ and Christ alone, and not mistaking some other nice and convincing-sounding ideas as a substitute to the cross. And it is in this framework that Colossians is written, and it is very much a letter divided into two clear halves. The first half is all about what Christ has done, which is fitting, given that we're in the week after Easter, um, which is all about what Christ did. And the second half is then what we do in response. Paul is always quick to greet the church and tell them of his love for them and how he always prays for them. Remember, it's important to pray for all the church all the time, especially if we feel a particular church body is having a tough time or maybe a confusing time for whatever reason. And note that he reminds the church in verses 5 to 8 that there is hope in what God has reserved for them and that it is the same good news the church heard in the past that is going out all over the world, a truth about God's grace and the love of others that comes from the Holy Spirit. Um, The first actual verse I think is important to focus on in chapter 1 though is verse 9. So if you get your Bibles and read Colossians 1, 9, which says, We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will, and give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul is quick to remind us that we should be seeking God's will and God's wisdom and understanding of God over and above wisdom and understanding that is only from human cultures. Um, I I think modern Britain is not particularly dissimilar in this regard to the ancient Greek forums. Lots of culture, lots of ideas and beliefs all being debated and melded together. And so many philosophies sound extremely convincing and positive, and it's easy to see how the church, and indeed how our modern church today, can fall into the trap of splicing different ideas together that end up undermining Christ rather than being bolstered in him. Uh, If we go on and read the next few verses, we see that Paul is not unsympathetic to how difficult this can be for Christians. Um, So we spend a bit of time reading on to verse 14, and a few things jump out to me. In the way he writes, Paul is quick to tell the church that he's praying for them to have strength in God's power so that the church can have endurance and patience. It looks as if some of the Christians in Colossa had been struggling with their lives as Christians amidst a culture that looked, uh, you know, like it offered a wider range of beliefs that looked like the winning bet and maybe the culture that didn't like them very much. And Paul's not an idiot. He knows that being a Christian means giving up a lot of earthly pleasures and ambitious pursuits. The aim of making your life as rich and fun as possible and having fame and fortune is not what the church is all about. 
which means for a church that is smack bang in the middle of wealth and fame and fortune means believers are going to be tempted and tested hard. Take a minute now to think about how our blend of cultures may influence what we believe and what we expect from God as believers. Do we sometimes blend culture to Christ? Are we sometimes tempted to follow different ideas because they don't demand so much patience and endurance and trust in God? Paul then goes on to what is most assuredly the most famous part of his letter, the poem of Christ Supreme. So have a read through uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. You can pause here at any point. Now, this is a really beautiful explanation of Christ's supremacy. And just look at the things he points out. He says, Christ is the image of God. Christ existed before all things and is ruler over all things. The things we see and the things we can't see. And in the middle, this big one, everything was made by him and for him. And he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church. And through him, God reconciled all things to himself by Christ's blood on the cross. It is so easy to give up when things are tough. It is much, much easier to do the same thing as everyone else. Um, so Paul wants Colossa, and he wants us to remember that it is Christ who is supreme. Uh, in that ancient Greek city, there were lots of misconceptions about good and evil. Um, some taught that anything that was material, so physical or natural, was evil, and only spiritual things were from God. Um, but this would mean that God... Uh, cannot have made the world because the world is material and therefore evil nor could God have come to the world as a man because surely that would also be evil and Paul binds all things together in Christ he says material things that we see are under Christ's rule the spiritual things we can't see are under Christ's rule and in Christ everything is held together the invisible father God and the visible Christ who died so that the natural and the invisible can be reconciled together I don't think this misconception is as prevalent in our church as in Colossa, but I know for myself that I've been around Christians who had no interest in the world and whose only interest was to, quote, go to heaven, as if the natural world was just bad. And, and Christ would not have been a physical, perfect man if that was the case. And Paul is quick to remind us that the natural and the spiritual are reconciled um, not one being destroyed and forgotten. We are meant to be on the earth as caretakers and image bearers of God. Um, Paul goes on to tell the church that though we were once separated from God due to our evil thoughts and actions through the death of Christ, in his physical body we are reconciled. And in verse 23 he says you must continue to believe this truth and stand firm in it. Now again there's that encouragement to stand strong to endure. The truth of Christ will be challenged, both in public and in your private thoughts. And Paul is aware that the mind is the root of good and evil. It can make someone's life full of joy or full of suffering. And when we're in isolation now, it is even more important to guard our minds with the truths found in this letter. Now, isolation is hard for the body and it's hard for the mind. It's easy to let ourselves get opened up to all sorts of dangerous ideas if we allow it. It is vital to build our mental health on Christ's supremacy and the truth that we are made right in him. And read verse 22. He has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. See, no one is good enough in their own strength to have a perfect life. And no one in their own strength can be constantly full of happiness. And if we're trying and sweating and struggling to find some secret to constant happiness and perfection, we're going to 
be heartbroken, we are going to fail. And if we're looking for a perfect meaning by being popular, we're always going to be end up letting down as well, um, because we can't please everybody, we can't make ourselves perfect. Even people who look perfect, who look like they've got their lives all together, are failing somewhere. And Paul wants the church in Colossa, as I believe he would want us to remember, that it is only through Christ that we are counted as blameless before God. That is what we need to remind ourselves about daily and build our strength upon. And and so we move on to chapter 2, and it follows quickly on. Uh, Paul wants the believers in the church to be bound together in love and for them to have complete confidence in Christ. Verse 3 says, In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He knows the world is full of well-crafted arguments that can cause one to lose their faith, or at least compromise on their faith. And our culture is no different. Um, and to be honest, there's nothing wrong with well-crafted arguments, but well-crafted arguments alone can't be what we base our faith upon. I remember Paul is specifically speaking regarding the church and what is right for Christians to base their lives upon. He was a philosopher himself. He probably had well-reasoned arguments and he probably had polite discussions with people, maybe even had a bit of fun discussing things. You know, we can have well-reasoned arguments discussing history or maths or music. And Paul is simply trying to safeguard the root of the church's identity in Christ. He's not saying that well-reasoned arguments in and of themselves are evil, but that if you base your life on an argument that is only made by man, you are going to have problems. Maybe take a few moments here to pause and think about whether we have come across well-reasoned arguments that have challenged us, possibly attacked our faith in Christ, or perhaps an argument, and I don't mean a fight, I mean like a discussion, within the Christian culture, especially in the last few years, that we are unsure is the truth. And the modern world is just like ancient Greece. It's full of ideas and discussions of ideas. And discussing ideas is something I love, but be careful that the fun of discussing ideas does not undermine Christ. And ask yourself, what well-crafted argument has been challenging to you in our modern church culture? My Bible headlines the next part of chapter 2, Freedom from Rules and New Life in Christ. In one of my favourite comedy shows, a central character is exploring which religion to pick. And he's told by another character that if he becomes Irish Catholic, he can do anything he wants, just as long as he simply goes to confession afterwards. And this is, of course, meant to be played for laughs. And it is funny. It's meant to be outrageous because the character then believes he can do whatever he likes. And he has some sort of karmic protection. And another character later on corrects him by saying, yes, you can do whatever you like, but there's a crushing guilt. And again, this makes me laugh, but it highlights two fundamentally incorrect beliefs that have circulated in the church and still circulate in the modern church, and not just the Catholic church. And misconception A is because of salvation, there are no, no rules, and we can do what we want. We're saved, we're never not going to be saved, and I can live my life however I want, and no one can judge me. And B is that because we're filthy, wretched, dirty, evil sinners, we must be constantly apologising and whipping ourselves and lamenting in tears and ashes and all these kind of things, grovelling before God, living under a cloud of fear and anxiety because we are unworthy. And I believe Colossians chapter 2 addresses these in apparently very old misconceptions. In verse 13 of chapter 2, Paul explains that though we were dead and guilty, terrible wretches and, you know, all that, um, 
God then made us alive with Christ. In verse 15, he says, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. There is no need at all for us to feel guilt for things we had done if we have accepted and repented in the death and resurrection of Christ. If anyone or anything is still making you feel shame, that thing or that person might need to be cut out of your life or at least challenged extremely harshly, as it has no place in Christ. And Paul then moves on to a very specific practical example. In verse 16, he says, Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating holy days. And in verse 18, Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or angel worshipping. Verse 21, 23, you know, he says, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These rules are human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. They might seem wise because they require strong devotion, self-denial and discipline, but they provide no help in actually conquering evil desires. Um, especially for the Jewish people in the church that would have come to Christ, they would have come to Christ with a culture that was aggressively living under the law, which was what you can eat, what you can't eat, when you have to worship, why you have to worship, really regimented um, in order to make themselves right with God. And if we remember in Acts 10, Peter, who was a Jew, is given a vision from God where a voice from heaven tells him that he can eat from a variety of animals. Some of them would have been unclean and that would have been shocking to him. Um, especially to cultures who believe that what they ate and when and how dictated whether or not they were closer to being righteous. And perhaps our culture has similar practices that we believe to be vital in our salvation, but are in fact just man-made cultural things. Perhaps it could be something small, like some churches insist that you have to dress smart to walk in the door. And some churches, particularly in the US, and I know some Asian and African countries, will be very, very judgmental if you go out for a beer. Because alcohol is the devil, apparently. Some Christians will condemn um, others if we read or watch certain things. And don't get me wrong, certain things should be avoided because they are unhelpful to our minds and can hurt our souls. And some people will need to avoid doing some things for their own mental and spiritual health. But others might not. So a really silly example is that some Christian families think that Harry Potter is a gateway drug to witchcraft. It's not, nor is heavy metal. We all have cultural things that can be helpful and cultural things that can be hindering. And Paul is explaining in verse 20 that, look, you've died with Christ. He has set you free. And he's saying that there are many cultural religious practices that Christians do not need to follow in order to be made right with God. Now, he's not saying that, for instance, discipline and self-denial is evil and that any rules made by people are therefore evil. I mean, in many ways, Paul practiced self-denial in the way he served the church. But he's saying that there are many things that people believe they need to do to be made righteous that actually they don't. And he's also not saying that when Christ saves you, you can do anything. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, I'm permitted to do anything, but not everything is good for me. You know, we are we are beings of free will. We can do anything. Christ has set us free from a lot of stuff. Doesn't mean we should be doing anything. <laughs> look, look back at verse 23. Those rules provide no help for conquering evil desires. And it is that that is much more important to Paul and is much more important to Christ is where our evil desires come from. And have a read back at the closing parts of chapter 2 to finish up and think about 
are there any cultural practices in our life as Christians that might look like the kind of things we must do or that you feel like you have to follow? Do they actually conquer evil desires? Do they actually set our minds and hearts free? Or are they extra? Have they been added on to the saving grace of the cross? And secondly, is there anything in your life that is holding you in shame? And is it actually something you need to work through in prayer and the spirit? Or is it something like not wearing nice clothes or I went to a bar once? Is it something that is actually a, a just a normal cultural practice that isn't harmful or hindering? It's dead and gone in Christ's resurrection. You need to let it go. Uh, reflect on that. And as always, if you want to discuss anything, get in touch.